0: you once again for being with us today at Community Baptist Church and if you would take your Bible please let's turn to the book of Romans chapter 8 where Bill read for us just a few moments ago Romans chapter 8. I I'm want to call your attention just by way of reading to a couple verses that were already read then we'll have a word of prayer and then we'll look into the message here for today. Let me draw your attention please if I may to verse number 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Note particularly the next phrase, For I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Father, as we come into Your presence or continue in Your presence, we covet Your blessing. We come at the very outset to confess that we are unworthy sinners without hope and without God in the world apart from what we have just been reminded of the love of God which is expressed to us in Christ Jesus our Lord about which we have just sung powerfully those words remind us of how You have poured Your great love on us and may you pour it upon us anew even as we just sang would you do that today and Lord would you use your word would you use your servant I pray father that you would just grant to me a fresh sense of your cleansing a fresh sense of your presence and grant that today I might speak your word with practicality with warmth with accuracy and that the word of God might find lodging in every heart and life Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth, keep the door of my lips. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For I pray these things now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, I'd like to continue, as you see there on the title screen, a little bit with the series that I began actually back in October when I last had the opportunity to preach to you which I'm entitling Paul uncertainties. And then, of course, each time as we shift topics, you see the particular area that we're honing in on, which today is security in Christ. Very quick reminder, so what this sort of comes from is the fact that as you read through Paul's epistles, you will find 16 times that Paul uses the expression, I know, we know, you know, and I'm giving you King James here but in addition to this you will find three times where he uses the expression I am persuaded and we actually have one of those today verse number 38 ESV renders it for I am sure and the King James renders it it for I am persuaded and so what's going on with this is not that every truth in the Bible is not important but there are certain things about which God wants to be certain that we are absolutely certain and that every doubt is removed. And so we started this last time, I've grouped these into about six different topics. We started last time by talking about the Gospel. and I can't think of anything that we need to be more certain about. Aren't you glad that God chose to emphasize that and to make so clear in His word what the Gospel is? Because apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and apart from his saving work on the cross of Calvary, we are, as I said a moment ago, without hope and without God in the world. And so, since we know that we are sinners who need to be saved, we also need to know the gospel so that we may be assured that we have our sins forgiven and have a home in heaven. That's kind of the starting point. But let me ask you this. If you've trusted Christ as personal Savior, has the question ever come up? I'm sure it has because it's just sort of how we are sometimes There's a proneness to doubt. Has the question ever come up, well, okay, I was saved, but am I still saved? Can I know I'm saved? What about when things happen? Sometimes we refer to this as backsliding. And things just come along in life that were unexpected, that are untoward. Sometimes things that just shake us to our very core and maybe we have the question, well, what does that do to my relationship with God? And where am I in my relationship with God? And I just want to point out to you this morning that God wants us to understand that having been saved, we have a security in Christ. And as Paul said, there is nothing in all creation that can change that and can intervene between the love of God that we have and us in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason I think it's important, and I I really think maybe the reason that God knows it's important and uses His servant to emphasize this particular point, that is the Apostle Paul, is because the reality is when you get out into life and when you begin to experience life, you find out that sometimes you really are separated from people and things that you never thought you could be separated from. Isn't that true? For those of us who have been down the road a little bit in life, there are friendships, there are other things that we thought were unshakable, and you know what? Over time, they proved to be different. A number of weeks ago, I think last month actually, uh, Becky and I decided that we would take a couple day trip to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. We sort of got interested in it because of the background of the town, and also for years, our oldest son has talked about, and he's done it, of course, of going there to the American Museum of Science and Energy. And some of you might know Oak Ridge because of the Manhattan Project. So, essentially what is going on here is that there was no really Oak Ridge, Tennessee until the early 1940s. And when the United States became involved in World War II, President Roosevelt became aware of the fact that Germany was in desperate pursuit of a a new weapon, an atomic weapon, and he also made it certain then that the United States won that race, which I think you know was a successful undertaking. Project Manhattan was, as it was called, ultimately culminated in the weapons that ended World War II, the atomic weapon that was dropped on Hiroshima and the plutonium weapon that was used on Nagasaki. Oak Ridge, Tennessee became the place where all of that research and a lot of that work was done. In fact, the uranium that was used in the weapon that was dropped on Hiroshima was pretty much all manufactured there in Oak Ridge. So all of these people came in. Well, how do you have the property and how do you have the facilities to do all of this and keep it secret? And so a man by the name of Fred Morgan was called upon. He was the project manager and basically You have 60,000 acres, think about that for a moment, 60,000 acres along a 17-mile valley in Tennessee, about 25 miles west of Knoxville, that ceases to belong to the people who owned it. And by right of what we call today, in legal parlance, eminent domain, was expropriated by the United States government. I thought that you would be interested in looking at this. Now, that's going to be very difficult for you to read, and I suspected that, that it would be so. I All right, I've got a copy here that's bigger than that. But it's just kind of interesting to look at the actual letter. This is a letter, and you can maybe read the, the heading at the top, War Department, Corps of Engineers, Kingston Demolition Range, Land Acquisition Section, Harriman, Tennessee. It's written to a man by the name of Parley Ruby neither here nor there, but there were a lot of people like Parley Ruby, Route 1, Oliver Springs, Tennessee. Listen to this letter. The War Department intends to take possession of your farm. This letter, by the way, is dated November 11, keep that in mind, 1942. The War Department intends to take possession of your farm December 1, 1942. That's like three weeks at Thanksgiving and Christmas. It will be necessary for you to move, not later than that date. In order to pay you quickly, the money for your property will be placed in the United States Court at Knoxville, Tennessee. The court will permit you to withdraw a substantial part of this money, and it goes on, but it doesn't get any better. And as you can see at the bottom, it's signed by Fred Morgan, as I mentioned, who was the project manager. So isn't it true? I mean, how many things in our way of thinking as Americans are more permanent and secure than private property? And yet it happens. It happened to these people and some of these people had already been displaced one time because of immediately preceding all of this, the Tennessee Valley Authority coming in and also using the right of eminent domain to take people's property from them to build dams and have hydroelectric projects. I'm not commenting on this pro or con. I'm simply using it as an illustration because, as I said, the reality is sometimes in life we become separated from people and things that we never thought could happen to us. My question this morning, and I think the thing that God wants us to think about is, could this be possible with Christ? And Paul is convinced absolutely otherwise as you notice in verse 38. For I am sure... This is a Paul certainty, which means that through Paul, it is a certainty which you and I are privileged also to have. A lot of things you can't be sure about in life, but there are some things you can, and this is a treasure, beloved, I am sure. I want to look at several thoughts with you this morning. First of all, I want to talk about the audience, because I've probably been meditating, praying, thinking about this passage and thinking about this message, oh, probably since the last one in October. It's kind of the way with preachers, you know. I mean, you look at what's the next message, you start thinking about it. And I don't know why it took me so long to figure this out when I know I've read this for years, I've preached this for years. But that's the wonderful thing about God's Word, isn't it? I mean, it's ever fresh. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there in my chair one day and I'm thinking to myself, good night. I never thought about the fact, you know, this is Romans. He wrote this to the Roman Church. What's significant about the Roman Church? Well, because it became basically the official center of persecution against Christianity. I mean, let's think about this for a moment. Paul wrote Romans in, generally speaking, we date Romans in AD 57. Do you realize that seven years later, that's not really too long, seven years later, Rome, much of Rome would be caught up in a fire, a conflagration. The emperor Nero would pin the blame. See, politicians don't change. He would pin the blame for that on somebody, some group, and that turned out to be Christians. And so, in the providence of God, he is using his servant, the apostle Paul, to write these words to a church that, in short order, people who got this letter, people who became familiar with these words, God knew that not only they, but that we, down through time, were going to need these words. After all, soon Peter and Paul himself would be martyred in that very city. You can you imagine people who got that letter originally who knew Paul and had learned those words, all of a sudden facing this horrible and official persecution and further down the road, some of them right there in the Roman Colosseum, facing the adversary, quite literally. God sends these words to them. I'm simply pointing out, if and when, whether they or you, whether literally or figuratively, face the lions. You want to be able to answer the question that he asks in verse 35. So just look down once again at your text and look at the question which is repeated a little bit later. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Would you want to have the answer to that if you were in that situation? Yeah, you would, and you'd want to have that answer in a lot of the situations that God will eventually call upon you and me to face in life. All of that leads us to think about animosity because, folks, unfortunately, the problem is is that, and I don't mean for us to have a complex, but the reality is that, you know what, for us as Christians living in this world, as the songwriter said, this world is no Friend to grace. The message of grace has always been offensive to human pride for the simple reason that the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ basically confronts us with the fact that we are hell bent, lost and undone, and there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves. This is what we looked at in the message last time. For I know, Paul said, that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. That to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I, we cannot do that. It's not there. Only God's grace gives us hope. We cannot earn God's favor. And so the message of Christianity has always not sat well with this world. And people find different reasons, but ultimately what we're seeing right now with God's people in Israel is not a whole lot different. Somehow persecution just dogs the Christian Church, and, Christ, and persecution just tends to dog the Jewish people. Anybody who stands for God, anybody who belongs to God. I don't say go out of your way and look for it. I don't say go around with a chip on your shoulder, but Paul did say it himself when he wrote to Timothy in that second epistle and said, Yea, and all those who shall live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So, As we progress down through this, I want to use two questions, which I think, I mean, there's a lot of questions here. But I want to put it in our speak, so to speak, for today, in very practical terms and then show you how he answers this with a resounding no. So, question number one. Is it possible, I want you to put yourself in a position that you entertain whether or not you've already asked yourself this question or that you might at some point ask this question. I think for most of us, we have. Is it possible that in the end our sins might ultimately prevail? Oh, you might be sitting here this morning and say, oh no, 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 no. We've been taught better than that. We know that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Yeah, I know, but we also doubt, don't we? And so, Things come along in life, and we mess up. Anybody here messed up before? Yeah, well, and sometimes we mess up big time. And Satan comes like an old crow that lands on your shoulder and pecks you, and says, hey, Christians don't do those kinds of things. What is it with you? God is not going to accept you. I mean, you crossed the line, Buster. And unfortunately, if we're not really careful about being grounded in the Word of God and being able to quote the verses that will undo those lies, you can get all bollocksed up. Satan can turn you seven ways from Sunday. You're good here today, but what about this week? So yes, we've probably all asked that question before. Is it possible that in the end our sins might prevail? Now, what's going to go on? You see I have verses 31 to 34 there, but what's going to go on in these verses as Paul answers this is we're going to be thinking about the flavor, the atmosphere of a courtroom. So take yourself into a courtroom. If you've never been there, just watch a Perry Mason rerun or something like that. So you have to throw those things out so that you can date me. Matlock, try that. Come up a little bit closer. Just put yourself in the courtroom for a few moments. You say, well, where are you getting that from? All right, I hoped you'd ask that because I wanted to show you. Verse number 31 says, if God is for us. So first of all, I want you to think of God as the judge. All right, we know this, but let's look a little further down. So then we come to verse number 32, and it says, who shall bring any charge? That's actually, in the original language, that's a technical term that you'd use in a courtroom to press charges or to indict Someone. Know anybody right now who's been indicted four times or more? I'm just saying, right? We've got plenty of illustrations around us. I'm not coloring, I'm just saying it's, it's there. So we go on and we look a little bit further. It says, It is God who justifies. Justifies is a legal term. And God is the one who does that because God is the judge, God is both judge and jury. But look at verse 34. Here's another of those terms. Who is to condemn? Well, to condemn is, again, it's it's a technical term when it's used in this kind of a context for condemnation. A guilty verdict. Look at verse number one of the chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation. I don't think to say it again. I'll I'll say it right now. This chapter begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Try that out. That'll preach. So this is a legal flavor. And actually, we get down here just a little further. Actually, we looked already, and I, I sort of skipped over it, but then we keep, keep moving a little bit. It says, what about the Lord Jesus? More than that, it says, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed makes intercession for us. So if you get indicted, you need a good lawyer, right? He's the guy who's going to intercede. He's going to plead on your behalf. So... This whole argument in these three questions that start with who that we're going to see as we just look at this in a few moments, it's all colored. I want you to think in terms of those questions because that's how Paul is answering it. I mean, it's ironclad. It's bulletproof. So here's the first question. If God be for us, who, there's your first who, who can be against us? All right. let's use a reverse illustration. What if the judge is against you? I mean, isn't that going on right now? We have a ready-made illustration, right? We have a trial going on that gets incessant news coverage, and you not only have a prosecutor, that's the accuser, you not only have a prosecutor who's declared as to what her intentions are, not to get to the truth, not to find facts, but to get, and you have a judge who's already decided the case. That's a reverse illustration. What if you take the opposite side of that for a moment? What if the judge has already determined, no, he is justified, he is declared, she is declared righteous? In human terms, in earthly courts, you can do a lot of damage, but the court of heaven is the one that ultimately prevails. God is both judge and jury, and God has already justified, God has already determined that you and I, as his children, have been justified, have been declared righteous, then we are no longer under condemnation. This is what he tells us here. If God be for us, who can be against us? You say, well, how do I know God is for me? I mean, is this just... A verse or something? How do I know this? Well, if you really want to know how you know this, you look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now look, folks, we doubt, right? But when you think about this, how can you doubt that God is for you? When God has given the most precious possession, if I may use that term, that he has when God has bankrupted heaven of its crown jewel, his only begotten son, in order to pay the penalty for our sins. You know, in this terminology that's here, there's an allusion to the Old Testament. Do you think about that story of Abraham and Isaac and God said, I want you to sacrifice your only son. And you gotta remember now, he had Ishmael, but there was still a sense in which Isaac was only because he was the only one born of Sarah, and he's the one on whom all the promises are contingent, correct? And so God said, I want you to take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And right at the moment when he was ready to plunge that dagger down into the breast of his son, whom he had affixed to the altar, God says, don't lay your hand on the boy, or do anything to him, for now I know God knows everything, but now you know, is kind of the idea. That you fear God. Everybody for all time knows you fear God when they see this. Seeing you have not withheld, and there's the same word when this is translated into Greek that Paul uses in Romans 8.32. He who did not withhold, he who did not spare. Just as it was proven in this particular instance, God says, now I know now. You know now. Everybody in the world knows you fear God. You want to know if God loves you? You want to know if God is for you? Now you know because God did not stay His hand just as He told Abraham to stay His hand. God plunged the dagger into the heart of His Son on the cross of Calvary. God gave Him on our behalf. Let's look at the next who question. Who shall bring Any charge against God's elect? Well, I mean, they do it all the time, right? Who does? Satan does. Isn't he the accuser of our brethren? Am I right? Doesn't it say that in the Bible? Doesn't Satan accuse us all the time? Doesn't your own conscience on occasions accuse you? Don't other people accuse you? You know, any more folks in the world in which we live doesn't have to be true. You just need to have somebody prominent accuse you and then put it on the Internet. So we get accusations all the time. We we needn't think that we're going to escape the accusations. The prosecutors are legion because, as I said, this world is no friend to grace. But when God is for you, he's judge and jury and already determined that you're righteous. And when God is the one who answers the accuser, well, then again, you have another Old Testament illusion here because in Zechariah chapter three, you have this story, Joshua, the high priest, it says, standing before the angel of God. Let's skip ahead to verse three because look at this. How is he appearing? same way you and I do. This is you and this is a picture of you and me in what's us. He's standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. That's what all of our righteousness is, filthy garments, right? So Satan comes along to confuse, the, and what does God say? What does the Judge say, who is for us and has already determined the case? The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Let's look at the last who question. Who is he to condemn? Who can bring condemnation against us when it says here, as this follows Christ, Jesus is the one who died. Sin is the problem. Jesus Christ, who is the righteous substitute, is the one who has died on our behalf. But not only that, Paul says, more than that, he was raised, showing that his sacrifice was accepted and was efficacious on our behalf and that he was victorious who is at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? I mean, is it one thing he died and rose again? But you know he's doing something right now. Who indeed, it says, is interceding for us. So, this is Paul's argument already in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. I wanted to read this verse to you too. You see, Paul is sort of building on things that he's already taught them. But he says, In Romans 5.10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, we are saved by His life. And the way the author of the Hebrews puts it is, consequently He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives. make intercession for them. Oh, the sacrifice was once for all, but the pleading is going on right now. I mean, if anybody accuses, if Satan presents himself, you have a defense attorney that's way in excess of Johnny Cochran, that's way in excess of Perry Mason, you have an offense defense attorney who is pleading a sacrifice made on your behalf, and he ever lives to plead that. So, then we need to come to something else. There's a second question here, because we need to move along. But, so, let me ask you this. Here's the second question that we'll take up in some of these following verses. Could, is it possible, though? Okay, so we deal with this. No, it really isn't possible that in the end our sins might prevail. Let me ask you another one then. How about a malign actor or event? Something that's malicious, something that's hostile, something that's engaged in animosity. Could that ever come between us and Christ? Could something like that ever happen to us and disrupt the relationship and now we need to switch gears. Okay, I've had you in the courtroom for the last few minutes. Now I need to take you into the family. Because the way Paul asks this question in verse 35, and here's your last who question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is the language of relationships, people who love one another. But more importantly, Paul uses a word here, separate. He uses it in verse 35, he uses it in verse 37. For I am sure that neither death nor life, you get down finally verse 38, to separate us. Let me show you another context to bring my point out. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he's dealing with people who have difficulties in their marriage, he says this, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. Well, I'm not going to dwell on this point, beloved. I just want you to get the illustration. But you know, most everyone can think back who's married or was married so, when you first fell in love? And you never thought anything could disrupt that or change that. But down the road in life, sometimes it happens, doesn't it? Things happen and they come between and they sever some of life's seemingly most precious relationships. And this is what he's asking could that ever happen? Could that ever happen to the believer? Could something come along, some malign actor or event, could something like that ever happen that could intervene? And so we have to think about relationships, and here's two answers. I'm not going to so much point you to a a logical progression of verses, I'm just going to show you things that are here. Here's two answers to the question. What's the question? Could a malign actor or event ever come between us and Christ and it does happen in this world no matter how much we'd like to believe that it can not whose love are we talking about because the question that he asks is who shall separate us from the and what's the next phrase love of Christ yeah you know, it's the vagary of both English grammar and even Greek grammar that this particular phrase is subject to interpretation. Are we talking about Christ's love for us, or are we talking about our love for Christ? Back to that marriage relationship for a moment. See, it's our love that waxes and wanes. That's the whole problem. So if by this expression Paul is talking about our love for Christ, there's a problem. Because today you're off and tomorrow you're on. Today you're fervent and the next day you're lukewarm. Today you're hot, the next day you're cold. Right? I mean, that's just us. That's unfortunately, but it's true. We wax and wane. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never waxes, He never wanes. His love is constant, and I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that the love that He's talking about here is not my love for Him, which waxes and wanes, but His love for me. I know it from the context, and I know it from the Irrefutable expression in the phrase that you have in verse number 39. Look at it. Nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can walk out on God, but God will never walk out on you. Second reason I know in this language of relationships, and Paul mentions seven things. Not going to take time, don't worry not going to take time to talk about the mole, but I said a malign actor or a malign event. Look at seven of these. He talks about a who, but it's a what. He asks the question because there's, a, there's an actual actor behind all of this. But the what's that these actors set in motion are sevenfold. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And then he gives us a quotation from Psalm 44:22 for your sake, we were being killed all the day long. We were regarded as sheep. They they look at us like just sheep to be slaughtered. But you know what? Earlier in the context, when Bill was worried that we wouldn't quite, we would be wondering what he means when he says in verse thirty-one, "What then shall we say to these things?" He's already taught us something about all these things. If you look back up to verse twenty-eight. Here's another Paul uncertainty, but not for today. It's another message. We know that all things work. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What's that saying? It doesn't matter whether it's tribulation or distress or famine or nakedness or sword. It doesn't matter. God is controlling every one of those things which we regard as malicious, whether it's the human actor or the spiritual actor behind it or whether it's the event itself, whether it's a who or what. God is in control of it, He is controlling it in such a way that He forces it to produce good. It cannot do harm. But you know when you're in the middle of it, it seems mighty harmful sometimes, doesn't it? But God is in control. So relationships are at the backdrop of this. You know, I thought about this song, I had given Pastor Steve a couple of questions for songs for today. And I think we sang the song recently, so I didn't really suggest it. But you know, George Matheson was the guy who wrote the song O oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. There's a really interesting story behind it because when Matheson, he was Scottish, when he was born, he had a, an immediate challenge in, in very early life with his, his vision. He couldn't see well, only, only had partial vision, but by the time he was 18, he lost his vision completely. So it's almost like a Fannie Crosby deal where by the time he was 18, he was completely blind. Well, he was a brilliant student. None of that kept him from studying theology. He went to the University of Glasgow. He became a pastor. He also became engaged to a young lady. Until she got to the place where she decided she just couldn't be married to a blind man. And she left him that break your heart? But George Matheson wrote about it. O love that will not let me go God's love never lets us go. I rest my weary soul in thee I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer fuller be that's our God. Now we have to talk just for a moment about the last thing I went too far, sorry. The answer. well, <laughs> When you get done put, unpacking all this stuff and you get done with the fact that the answer to these two questions, could anything ever separate, could our sins ultimately prevail? Could anything ever separate us? And, and he proves this beyond any shadow of a doubt. Now he comes to the conclusion in which he says in verse number 37, no. I mean, if you like it short and simple, there it is. No. You say, um, you have trouble memorizing? All right, you can memorize part of a verse today. No. One word. Can anything separate you or I from the love of God, which has been shed upon us in Christ Jesus, our Lord? No. Is it possible that our sins might ever prevail over us and in the end we be lost? No. And if you want to help yourself more, just memorize the passage. But in this answer, the the emphatic conclusion is no. And Paul is absolutely convinced of this. This is what he says, for I am persuaded. I I prefer that translation even though the, the Greek tense is a perfect tense. I have been persuaded. But As you may know from messages, when Greek uses the perfect tense, what it's attempting to do is focus on the past event, but more so its current implication. And so this translation for I am, current implication, sure, is good. Or I am persuaded. I'm convinced. I'm convinced of this. And if you want a a practical, just I don't have time to preach it, but I'll just give it to you. How can I? I'm asking you to ask yourself this question. How can I as a Christian say that statement? How can I say I have been convinced? Well, I'll give you 3 reasons how you can know this. First of all, did you accept Jesus? Did you repent of your sins and accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Did you? Paul said, "I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded." I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. So you believed. You told me so, right? You've done that. When you believed, what happened? Back up in the chapter to verse 17. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. He gave you the Holy Spirit who bears witness in your heart. And what else? In all that time since this happened that you trusted Christ as your personal Savior, You've had church, and you've had the Bible, and what have you been doing? You've been growing, hopefully, in your understanding of Christian truth. What truth? He says, what shall we say to these things? What else is he talking about besides what he said in verse 28? Look at verse 29. For whom he, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers... And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And I'll give you a three-sentence summary of this because I don't have time to deal with it. I know these these are potent truths. That's why I say we all grow in our understanding of them. And the more convinced and the more sure we become of these things, the more absolutely convinced we become that God's salvation is utterly bulletproof. What is it? God already has determined from eternity past whom he will save. The people. God has already determined the people. God has already determined the purpose that he that we might be the firstborn con, that we might be conformed to the image of his son and be the firstborn among many brethren and God has already determined before the process. What process plays out in time? for those things that God has conceived in eternity to be realized in the lives of people, men and women, boys and girls, on November 12, 2023. What plays out? God efficaciously calls. God declares and has declared from eternity past that person to be justified. And God already knows that where that airplane takes off from the city of sin. It never lands, it never runs out of fuel, it never develops engine trouble until it lands in the city whose gates are pearls. You get on the airplane of salvation, you don't have to worry about it going down, you don't have to worry about turbulence, well, I take that back, you get a little turbulence. You don't have to worry about an engine going out, you don't want to worry about the pilot going to, reach over there and grab some handles and turn off the fuel to the jet engines. Brother, you board the plane of salvation. Jesus gives you the ticket. You get on that baby, and it doesn't land until it gets to glory. So nothing in the course of life, he says, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly in it. Nothing in the course of life, whether the unseen world, the unfolding of time, the vastness of space, or in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, let me drill that down for you. What is all that list? Pastor T was talking to us about this. Paul's got a lot of lists. This is a list. But man, when you really stop and meditate on this, ah, look at this, neither life nor death, that's the course of life. Nothing in the course of life. Life takes a lot of water under the bridge, you know that? Angels, rulers, and powers, nothing in the unseen world, doesn't matter if the malign actor is a spiritual actor. Nothing, he says, the things present, things to come, nothing in the unfolding of time. Height nor depth, the vastness of space, because it fascinates me that the word bathos, which is translated depth, is often refers, we think of it as the depths of the sea, and height, is a word that can be used astronomically to think about we understand so much more of this today in the heavens, nothing in all the vastness of space. So let me ask you something real quick. Back in July, that submersible, the Titan, dove 12,500 feet on the Titanic. You realize when you get down there, it's so dark you couldn't see your hand in front of your face is so cold, you can't live in that. And you know the worst happened? The five people in that thing were killed? That thing imploded? But you think about it, if you were on board that Titan and you're separated from the surface, from everything you know of, of this world, from, from all the people that you know in this world, you're separated by over two miles of water from all of that. And the worst happens, Can that separate you from the love of Christ? Or you're on on board Apollo 13. You know, the Apollo 13 space mission to the moon blasted off in April of 1973. men on board that voyage. It was the only one that never made it to the surface of the moon. You know why? Because 56 hours into that flight, There was an explosion in an oxygen tank, and that spacecraft was crippled. And you and I who lived through that time, we were on pins and needles as to whether our people would make it back home. And you're out there in the vastness of space, looking thousands of thousands of miles back on Earth, and you're saying, Can anything separate me from the love of God? All of this vastness of space and no if they hadn't made it back and the worst thing that ever happened, even that can't separate you because God knows where you are. The psalmist talked about this when he said, Whither shall I flee from thy spirit or whither shall I go from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and flee and and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the uttermost parts of the sea, heaven itself, even there shall thy right hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. So imagine yourself, because I want to take you back to the beginning. Imagine yourself in the Colosseum. You can look, and you can see the gates. Through those bars, you can see the lions. You know the fate. When they pull that gate up, and those lions come out, you've been condemned. You know the fate that you're going to suffer. You had anything that would stand by you in those moments? He wrote these words to the Roman church. But he wrote them to you and me. And here's somebody who had that exact experience, and with this we close. Some years ago, we remember reading this passage under moving circumstances. One, a cloudless January night, late arrived in Rome, we stood in the Colosseum, a party of friends from England, Orion, the constellation, with the giant, the giant with the sword glimmered like a specter, the specter of persecution, sword, above the huge precinct, for the full moon, high in the heavens, overpowered the stars, By its light, we read from a little testament these words written so long ago to be read in that same city, written by the man whose dust now sleeps at the fontaine where the executioner dismissed him to be with Christ. Written to the men and women, some of whom at least in all human likelihood suffered in that same amphitheater, raised only 22 years after Paul wrote to the Romans and soon made the scene of countless martyrs. Do you want a relic, said a pope? To an eager visitor, gather some dust from the Colosseum. It is all the martyrs. We recited the words of the epistle and gave him thanks, who had there triumphed in his saints over life and death, over beasts and men and demons. Then we thought of the inmost factors in that great victory truth and life. What truth? They knew whom they had believed, their sacrifice, their head, their king. He whom they had believed lived in them, and they in Him by the Holy Ghost given to them. Then we thought of ourselves and our circumstances so totally different on the surface, yet carrying the same needs in their depths. Are we too to overcome in the things present of our modern world? And in the face of the things to come yet upon the earth, are we to be more than conquerors, winning blessing out of all things, and really living in our own generation as the bondmen of Christ and as the sons of God, then for us also the absolute necessities are the same truth and the same life, and they are ours. Thanks be to the name of our salvation. Time hath no more dominion over them, because death hath no more dominion over him, For us too Jesus died, in us too by the Holy Ghost He lives. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Father, we bow in your presence for we have spoken with limited ability of truths that are almost beyond our reckoning. Yet made in part understandable to us by the ministry of your Holy Spirit enough for us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our sins have been forgiven, that we're on our way to heaven, and nothing, no malign actor or event, not even the things we mess up and do ourselves will ever change the love you have for us or the decision that you have made concerning us. And We thank you for this treasure. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.